It's good to be with you all this morning. I'm very glad to be able to wrap up what's been a great year. And that falls to me to do with a special uh, topical event today on the man and his mission from Nehemiah 1 and 2. But before I do that, I need to make one comment about last week. Uh, Jerry's prayer for being concise, that, that concerned me a little bit. I, I don't know where that came from, but anyway, he was praying for being concise. And I do apologize as I did then for spilling over, and we won't do that today. Um, I've asked several of you to walk out at 728 just so I can get that message. But uh, you all were so encouraging. You know, several of you came up to me right after. You seemed concerned, like, you know, I don't think you had quite time to get through all that. I had some questions about those last points, and uh, at least that's what I thought all of you that lined up here wanted to talk about. No, but in fact, the person came up to me and said, okay, uh, now, you, you said you had a really good joke that you didn't tell us about. That. And in fact, I did. I had a really good joke. For loudmouth boasters were mentioned at the end of Jude, these loudmouth boasters. And so I figured I'll give you the joke anyway. I, mean, I won't go into all the rest of it, but I'll give you the joke. Loudmouth boasters put me in mind of a, a joke about this particular animal out on the farm one day. And this particular animal would come up to the other animals and say, Hi, I'm a wide-mouthed frog. What are you? What do you eat? Well, I'm a horse, and, and I eat grass. Oh, okay, bye. He'd hop along. Hi, I'm a wide-mouthed frog. What are you? What do you eat? I'm a bird, and I eat worms. Oh, okay, well, bye. Kept hopping on down toward the pond, came up to this animal and said, Hi, I'm a wide-mouthed frog. What are you and what do you eat? I'm an alligator. I eat wide-mouthed frogs. Oh, you don't say. Well, I'm so glad to meet you. That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you got to put a loud-mouthed boaster in his place, and then he gets a little more humble, and he closes up that wide mouth. But... Uh, Okay, well, anyway, that's, uh, that's about the best we got to do here. Today, we are talking about the man and his mission, and we are talking about it from Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. As you get your papers together, you want to look at those two chapters. I think I need to give us a little bit of background, two kinds of background. One kind of background is the historical background to what's going on in Nehemiah. The second kind of background is a theological background, so we can connect what's going on in Nehemiah with our lives in 2017 in Memphis, Tennessee. So we're going to look at both kinds. Historical background. It was years before I recognized. I'd been a Christian. I'd been reading my Bible. But I did not realize that there was more than one exile and more than one return. I thought, you know, it's pretty simple. Oh, God got so fed up with them that they finally got exiled out of Jerusalem in 586 when the city fell. And then finally they got to go back and all of them took off and went back to Jerusalem when Cyrus gave a decree that they could return to their houses. The Persian Empire having taken over from the Babylonian at that point. Well, that's not exactly how it goes. And you begin to wonder about that as you're reading through Daniel, for example. You find out he was in the exile, but he's a good bit ahead of 586 B.C. So what's going on? Well, there are in fact three exiles or deportations from Jerusalem into Babylon. The first of those occurs in 605 B.C., and that is the one in which Daniel and his friends, we know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's the one in which they were taken captive, 605. That's 20 years before the final fall in 586. Then there's a second deportation or exile that occurs in 597 B.C., and that's the one that got Ezekiel. So if we're reading the prophet Ezekiel and we're trying to put the dates together, we realize, oh, okay, yeah, the, the fall of Jerusalem occurs in the prophet Ezekiel. We read the story and Ezekiel's already in exile. How can that be? Well, he was in that second exile of 597. Then the third and the final and the coup de grace exile is in 586, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city and breaks down the walls and destroys the temple. There is no temple. Melts the gold that was on the walls and takes it captive into Babylon. So that's it. It's done at that point. 
in 586 B.C. Well then, as it had occurred in three stages coming into Babylon, so it occurs in three stages going out. It's a great and a glad day in 538 when Cyrus shows his enlightened policy of letting the conquered peoples return to their homes and to help in the governance of that local area. So Cyrus makes the decree that Israelites can go back. And so he sends back a delegation, anybody who wants to go, all the Israelites that can go. Well, I was shocked to find out some years ago studying this that not everybody went. There's a, in fact, more people stayed in Babylon than went back. Only about 50,000 intrepid souls were willing to make that 900-something mile journey across the deserts and through the Fertile Crescent to get back from the Tigris-Euphrates area back into Jerusalem because they knew what they were going to find there. They were going to find torn down walls, no temple. It was just total chaos, and they're going to go back. But there are a few faith-filled individuals, not risk-averse, who say we're going to tackle that and we're going to give our money to it and we're going to take a collection here. So some people who didn't actually return did give money and we hear that story in Ezra chapter 1 through 6. But that wasn't the only return. In Ezra chapter 7 we find a second return under Ezra. So Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the royal representative. So we at that point still can rep recognize who would have been the king in Jerusalem if the monarchy had been able to continue and they weren't under Cyrus. It would have been Zerubbabel. So that all occurs 538. Then 458, Ezra, the scribe, leads a smaller group back to Jerusalem. And we read that story in chapter 7 through 10 of the book of Ezra. And then finally, a third return um, takes place in about 445 B.C. And that is an even smaller return particularly involving one individual, and that is our guy, Nehemiah. So he is a Johnny-come-lately. He's back almost 100 years after the first group. In 538, he shows up in 445, almost 100 years later, and the still sad situation is that the walls have not been rebuilt. There is shambles still. And so, and that's what we're going to find out about. How did, how did this one person, just one person, Nehemiah, make a big difference on getting those walls built. All right, you got the historical background. You're thinking, Jerry, you prayed for concise. The man has just spent 10 minutes talking to us about historical background that we really don't care about. And it's the prayers of a righteous person that are powerful and effective, according to James. So just let the record show. Uh, actually, you still got time, Jerry. I'm, I'm going to try to... I'm going to show that your prayer is going to be answered. We're going to get out of here on time. But anyway, I think that's valuable historical background. I don't care what you think. All right. Second, <laughs> theological background. The man and his mission. Really? I mean, really? Every man has a mission? Nah, I don't know. I don't think so. You're thinking, perhaps. Some of you are, for sure. I don't have a mission from God. I mean, no way. I'm just, I'm just a fill in the blank. I'm just a carpenter. I'm, that, you got to remember that's got a pretty good pedigree. You know, there was a great carpenter in the first century, but uh, I'm just a fisherman. I'm just a um, postal worker. I'm just a doctor. I'm just a lawyer. I'm, I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not the leader of some grand enterprise like MCUTs or something. I, I'm just, I, no. And I'm here to tell you that every single one of us has a mission from God. The theological term is a calling. And our calling is what distinguishes us from one from the other, at least in one sense of that biblical word, calling. There are two senses, and that's the background I want to give for us just a little bit. There is a general calling that is taught to us in Scripture, we can see that general calling. Well, you can see both the general and the special calling in this one passage in Luke chapter 3 when John the Baptist is preaching and crowds are coming out to hear him. And he therefore said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Joel Osteen had not been around by this time and so 
John the Baptist didn't know. That's not the right thing to say. You know, you don't say that to people who are coming forward. You don't call them a brood of vipers and tell them, why are you fleeing from the wrath uh, to come? Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance and don't begin to say to ourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, well, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. That's our general calling. Every one of us is called to repentance and to faith in the one greater than John the Baptist who came right after him. We're called to put our faith in Jesus and to be his disciples. And in our discipleship, general calling, we're all supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're all supposed to love one another as a sign of our inclusion in the body of Christ that we have brothers and sisters and we love them. We're all supposed to live pure and chaste lives, not just not committing adultery in the physical act, but not even committing adultery in our minds. Jesus called us all to the same ethic, the same Sermon on the Mount, the same life. And so it's a general calling that we all share. However, the passage goes on in Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 11, or 12, sorry. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, well, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. There's a general calling that's true for everybody. This is what it means to repent. You all need to share your resources, to love one another, etc. But there's also a special calling and it looks different for a tax collector than for a soldier. You're saying, well, you're, I'm a doctor. What, what do I do? Then you need to seek the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, how is it that I may serve you in my specific sphere of endeavor? You're a lawyer. How can I serve you, Lord, in this specific field of endeavor? You're in business of some sort or another. Well, Lord, how can I serve you in this capacity? You own a business, Lord, what are the responsibilities for me as the owner of a business that I may serve you in this? You're a flunky in a business at the bottom layer in the, in the mail room. Lord, how may I honor you at this station in life to which you have assigned me? The image that John Calvin gives for a special calling is this great one of you are a sentry who has been put at a post on the wall by your commanding officer. And you stay there until he specifically comes and relieves you and tells you, I want you now to go to that spot on the wall. Or I want you to go get some R&R. But you guard your post until he comes and tells you you can go somewhere else. That's the image of calling that we have as men and as women, I would say. Every individual who is Christ's has a calling from Christ. It's illustrated in Luke 3, the difference between general and special calling. It's stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. There Paul gives this doctrine of calling, and he repeats several times, let everyone remain in the situation in life he was in when he was called. So when we were called, we were called to a specific situation in life that involves not only our work, but it involves our marital status, it involves the city in which we work, it involves the place within that city where we work. We are called to a specific station. And the Lord Jesus has put us there that we might serve him with gladness in that particular spot. Every one of us, every one of us has that kind of calling according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and illustrated in Luke chapter 3. That's the background then for Nehemiah and it's the starting place that J.I. Packer gives in his excellent treatment of the book of Nehemiah called A Passion for Faithfulness, Wisdom from the Book of Nehemiah. And what strikes Packer, who wrote Knowing God and several other great theological resources, he's a wonderful scholar, a wonderful teacher, and he's getting up there in his 90s now, up toward 100. Um, but he wrote this many years earlier. It, it's a great book, and he makes a lot about Nehemiah being 
a layperson. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a king. He was the cupbearer to a king, but not to even an Israelite king. He was cupbearer to a Persian king. And yet God used this one person to make a huge difference in the history of the people of God. Now, maybe that's one other thing that we need to talk about, and again, that Packer makes much of that is, uh, I think, awfully, awfully helpful. And that is simply this. Nehemiah's building a wall with stones and bricks and that kind of, he's building a physical wall. What on earth does that have to do with me in my mission? Well, Nehemiah conceived of his mission for the Lord as he was going to build up Jerusalem. As we'll see in a few moments, that's what he cares about. His, tell me about Jerusalem, the place where my fathers are buried. I mean, I, presumably he had never lived there probably. He was a young enough man that he may have been born in Babylon. And then it became part of Persia. And so he doesn't even know, but he stayed identified with the people of God. And the people of God in the Old Testament are continued in the New Testament. Paul calls Israel, or he calls the church, the Israel of God. So there is a continuity here between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. He, the word for that in the Old Testament is Zion. Zion doesn't just mean physical, literal Jerusalem. It's talking about the people of God. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem as the, as the habitation of the great king over all the earth, namely Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every man, every human individual has a mission, has a calling from God. And the way that played out in this specific mission in space and time and history has great ramifications for the way we will live out our mission in 2017 and however many more years the Lord God gives to each and every one of us. The way this, this uh, book of Nehemiah starts, it start, you can conceive this, this is probably stupid, but nonetheless, you can conceive this as two towns in Texas, because I can't think of any other state that would have a town named this, and I doubt that Texas does, but it could. It starts in Ho-Hum. This book just starts in Ho-Hum. Yawn, yawn, complacency. Ho-Hum, Texas. And by the end of Nehemiah, or the middle of it, really, when the wall has been built, and even by the end of chapter 2, which is as far as we're going today, we end up in a different, we're in a different place. Starting in Ho-Hum, Texas, we end up in Bygum, Texas. And the way to get from Ho-Hum to Bygum is a seven-stage journey that we're going to cover concisely. <laughs> you think, <laughs> seven stages concisely, really? Yep, we're going to do that. So, uh, buckle on your seatbelts, and let me tell you how we're going to discover our mission by studying Nehemiah and how he got his mission, a mission to take a bunch of people from Ho-Hum, Texas, yeah, what do we care, to buy gum, like, we can do this thing. We've been sitting around for years with no walls in this place. We can do it. Let's go for it. It's a huge change from Nehemiah 1.1 to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20. So, jump in. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah is just one guy, one guy. But he illustrates right off the, the, the bat the power of questions, and he just asks something. You're not clear about what your mission is, perhaps. You're wondering, I don't know, my mission, my calling. It begins often by just asking something. Nehemiah happens to say, first words out of his mouth, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped the exile and concerning Jerusalem. How's it going back there in the land of our fathers and mothers? What's happening in Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the city of David, the city of great David's even greater son who is to come? 
the city of Yahweh, the God of Abraham. What is happening there? And the answer that he gets starts a journey from ho-hum, like, who cares? All of a sudden, he cares a lot because his brother, whether it's his literal physical brother or whether it's his fellow countrymen, we don't know. It doesn't matter a whole lot. But he asks Hanani, you know, what's going on back there? And he says, you know, the city's not doing well. There is a temple rebuilt by this time. That was accomplished in the days of Ezra. And uh, that, that, that took place relatively quickly. But there are no walls. There are no walls. The city is just lying there um, exposed. And the remnant who lives there, they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem broken down. There are no gates. The gates have been destroyed by fire. There's a proverb that says that uh, the plans in the heart of a human being are like deep water, but a man of understanding can draw them out. And the way we draw these things out of people is that we ask people about the things that we care about. And as we ask questions, we begin to learn what we need to know in order to figure out, Lord, what is my contribution? What is my distinctive calling here? And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. And his first step here, the thing that's best about him is that he asks about the right subject. What do you care about that you would want to ask somebody about? What is your passion that you care about? And for Nehemiah, it's what it ought to be for us too, the kingdom of God. It's about Zion. It's about the people of God. It's about God's mission in the world. Well, how is that mission going? And he'll ask about Zion. We might ask about Zimbabwe. We want to know how the worldwide mission of God is going. We may ask about a certain part of Memphis that has concerned us. You know, my grandparents lived on blah 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 Street, and that street has gone through a lot of transition, but how's it going there? I just I feel a kinship with that particular part of Memphis, and so I want to do something about it. Well, that's great. Start by asking, asking something. Just ask something. And then you'll begin to see the power of questions, how they'll lead to something else that'll lead to something else that'll lead to something else. And that's what Nehemiah does. But it doesn't stop there. Second stage on the journey, he's just gotten a little bit down the road. He just made a little bit. All I did was ask a question. Yeah, that's what happened to David too, right? I, I just asked the question, what's going to be done for the guy that kills this giant? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's just a question. Well, that simple question led inexorably to a showdown between a small shepherd boy or a young shepherd boy and this massive giant that made all the difference in the history of the Bible going through with that great story. So similarly here, it's just a question. Yeah, but a question can be the beginning of many, many good things. Just ask something in order to understand your mission and then look at the power of questions. Secondly, feel something. You may think, oh, no, no, we're men of action, and Nehemiah's a man of action. That's what's great, and that's what we need. We need more action. We don't need feely, touchy stuff. Come on, David, you can do better than that. We're a bunch of men. We're manly men. We don't need to feel anything. Baloney. We need to feel deeply. We need to understand what the psalmist understood that, and the psalmist in many cases being David who would say, Lord, you know my distress. I am really under it. My couch is floating in tears. I wish you would keep my tears in a bottle so that you would see how deeply I care about this, how heartbroken I am over this. He was passionate with his tears. He was passionate with his praise. He was passionate with his worship. In fact, his wife said, well, you really distinguished yourself today out there, taking off your clothes and gallivanting in front of the serving girls. Well, I didn't take off all my clothes. What are you talking about? I took off my coat in order to be able to get into it more. And, and God was with David on that one and not with Michael, his wife. The power, the power of tears is evident when we feel something. So... As soon as I, Nehemiah, heard these words about the fate of Jerusalem and the remnant that was there, I sat down and I wept. It got to me. It stirred me at a deep, deep personal level. And many of us, if not all of us, could use that this morning to get stirred at a deep level about something that I really care about. 
and I'm not going to live my ho-hum existence anymore. I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to let the answer move me deeply. Francis Schaeffer was a 20th century apologist, theologian, philosopher, uh, missionary in Switzerland, but he really didn't end up doing that much missionary work in Switzerland. He ended up being more of an effective um, communicator for the United States and Western Europe than he did just for uh, Switzerland. But he wrote a number of books that were very, very helpful. The God Who Is There, Escape From Reason, He Is There and He Is Not Silent, other really wonderful books. And in those books, you will often encounter this phrase. We acknowledge that our culture has fallen far away from the biblical record. We have crossed the line of despair. We have watched how philosophy and art and music have all moved away from a biblical world and life view and have embraced uh, a, a more materialistic world and life view. And we acknowledge that fact with tears. We see that the culture is uh, going away. We talk with people who are wounded in sin and who are flaunting their rebellion against God and, their sin, and we weep with them. He's getting this with tears. In fact, it was so funny, in the Presbyterian Church in America, a sister denomination to the EPC, where we are at second, but I was in that denomination prior to coming here, and you go to the General Assembly and there would be some resolution passed, and invariably the resolution would go, we abhor this action that the culture has taken or that this group has taken, and we would stand in solidarity with the oppressed people of here, and we acknowledge that the country has done this terrible thing and then someone would say, I'd like to amend the motion. You say, what, what do you want to put in there? I want to say, we abhor this action with tears. Okay, we'll put that in there, you know, with tears. So it, would, it got to be funny after a while, but it was this characteristic of Francis Schaeffer who exerted a lot of influence on that early denomination, on that denomination. And so with tears would get inserted. I, I wish with tears would get inserted in my narrative a little bit more. I'm not a guy who cries very much at all. Um, and I frankly, wish I cried more. I wish I were moved more deeply, more often, and I acknowledge the sin around me and the sin within me with tears. Ask something, see where it goes. You get an answer, and you find that it strikes a nerve and it moves you, so feel something and see the power of tears in your life to show an empathy with other people. Sometimes tears can speak much more powerfully than any words that we say. So someone's given you some really bad news, someone said something about a sin, something, and all they see out of you is just these tears coming out of the corners of your eyes and beginning to come down your face. You haven't said a word, you're just, and that speaks volumes. You didn't come back with, you despicable person, I can't believe you did that, I can't. You're just weeping because you care. Third stage along the journey do something. So as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The God of heaven is sort of that generic word for God that would go anywhere in the ancient world, anywhere in Mesopotamia. Internationally, you could speak about the God of heaven. Now, as we'll see in a minute, that's not the only title for God that Nehemiah knows, but in his general audience here, he's talking about um, praying before the God of heaven, but he didn't just pray, he fasted and prayed. That's not something that we do all that often. We are, you know, that's a discipline that uh, we don't see very much. I don't think we're commanded to fast in the scriptures, but it's assumed that we will because there will be things that we care about more than food. And in order to devote ourselves to those, or in order to plead with God to do something in this area of intractable difficulty, Lord, I, I'm just, I'm going without food. I really care about this. I pray that you would intervene for your own name's sake, for your glory. Would you please act in this place? And I, it's not, I, I, I don't even care about eating because I care more about this than I do about eating. The Lord Jesus knew what that was like. Remember on the road to uh, Galilee, they had to go through Samaria and they go to Samaria and it's the middle of the day. And they said, man, we're bushed and we're famished too. We'll go into town and see if we can find some food. Jesus, you can just sit here and rest. He does by this uh, well there. And this woman comes up to the well in the heat of the day, which was a little strange. And Jesus asks her for something to drink. She goes, wait, well, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You don't ask me. And I'm a woman. You're a man. You don't ask me. And he says, if you knew who you, well, anyway, you know how that story goes. 
Um, he leads the woman to Christ. She goes back and tells the whole village, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And so the whole crowd is beginning to come out to him. The disciples come back and they go, here, have something to eat. And he goes, I've got food to eat you don't know anything about. Did somebody bring him a Big Mac already? I mean, how did, what happened here? He's like, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I just led this woman to Christ out here, led this woman to myself, and, uh, and it was awesome. And, you know, another, another lost person saved. There's rejoicing in heaven right now. That, that is my food. I care more about that than anything else. Is there something like that for you? That you would gladly skip a meal or two or three for if or in order that I might accomplish this. I'd go without food. Food's great. No problem with food. But there's some things that are more important than food. And so in order to give myself intensely to that thing, I'm going to skip food. I'll skip a meal. I don't have time to stop for that. I've got this project I'm working on. So I'm going to go for it. I want us to see the power of intensity when we do something. And this is something that every one of us can do. You say, do something. Yeah, I want to go out and do something. I'm going to fix it. Oh, gosh, there's no wall in Jerusalem. What can I do? I'm 900 miles away. I don't know. I, I got to think of a plan. I got to go fix it. The first thing that he did is that he fasted and prayed. He goes, I got to seek God for this. And I don't have time to eat right now. I'm sorry. I got to go and I've got to seek my God for this particular problem. All right. Fifth and uh, fourth stage along the journey from Ho-Hum to uh, from Ba-Gum, pray something. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there... I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. He fasted, but he didn't just fast, he prayed. Because he knew that the solution to this very difficult, intractable, years and years and decades and decades problem of no walls around Jerusalem, was not, it was a God-sized problem. It wasn't just a human-sized problem. I, and I'm only one individual, what can I do? I can pray. I can pray intensely, and I can pray with, like, this matters a lot to me. God, and if you don't intervene, nothing's going to happen. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So, Lord, act here. I've given some discussion and application questions for you to look through. I especially um, think that uh, this question is worthy of your consideration. What most impresses you about Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 through 11? And there are a number of things that could be uh, awesome. So... I've given you multiple choice. Hopefully that helps you. Are you most impressed by the adoration that occurs in verse 5? What was that again, that adoration? Lord God of heaven. God of heaven, he'd already mentioned in verse 4. Now it's Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God of heaven. Lord is the word for Yahweh. And it's translated in English by capital, all caps, to distinguish it from Adonai, which is the general word for Lord, Master, Ruler. Now, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I Am. It's the personal name for God. So, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, uh, Nehemiah is not saying here, O God of heaven, like, O God. It's not generic, that being greater than which cannot be conceived. No, it's specific, and by God, I mean you, Yahweh. I mean the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean that specific God. I do not mean Chamosh. 
I do not mean uh, Bel, the Babylonian god, or um, any of the Persian deities, or any, I mean the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like the God of Israel. That's the God I mean. Which God do you mean when you pray? You just start with praise and adoration, specifying I'm talking to this God who's made these promises, who has these attributes, who's done these mighty deeds in the past. And so Nehemiah rehearses those, and it gives him power for his prayer. It keeps him going. You're the great and the awesome God. You're the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So is it the praise, the adoration of this prayer that impresses you most? Or is it the confession in verses 6 and 7? You know, I and my family, we have not kept your law perfectly. We have not kept our side of the covenant. You're a great covenant-keeping God, but we're not. Lord, forgive us for our breaches of your covenant. And so we immediately can slip there too, which we should. Lord, I'm not doing my part of it. I'm embarrassed about this thing that I've done, this thing that I've thought, this thing that I've said, this thing that I've failed to do. Please forgive me. That may impress you from this prayer as well. Or are you most impressed by the promises that are claimed in verses 8 and 9? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 9. He's had his quiet time in Deuteronomy apparently, and now he's ready to pray it back to the Lord. And so he clings to those promises of forgiveness and restoration that God's given. Or is it the supplication in verses 10 and 11 when he gets right down to his request, Lord, help me, give me favor in the eyes of this man that I'm going to, I'm going to do something today. And so that's his prayer. Well, we've seen that in order to get from ho-hum over here to by gum over here, we need to ask something. We need to feel something. We need to do something. We need to pray something. And now there's a shift. And so what has been going on privately in chapter 1 is now going public in chapter 2. And what we find is that it was in the month Kislev that this action all began in chapter 1, verse 2 or so, which is in November, December, the ninth month of the Hebrew calendar. We would call it November, December, the beginning of winter. Well, now in chapter 2, we're coming to uh, the month Nisan, which is the first month in the Jewish calendar. March and April, that's when Easter occurred or Passover occurred in the Jewish calendar, and therefore that's where Easter occurs for us. And we find in the fifth place, this stage of the journey, try something. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, in other words, four months after Nehemiah became aware of all this, and he'd been mulling over it and praying over it for four months. When wine was before King Artaxerxes, I took him the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, well, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, well, what are you asking? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, well, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. We learn in these uh, opening verses of chapter 2 that Nehemiah didn't just know how to offer flowery prayers as part of his quiet time and he's alone with God. And he gives this great prayer with adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. He goes through all of it. He also knew how to pray on the spot when he all of a sudden was afraid because, oh boy, here it goes. The king's wrath is a messenger of death. If the king gets hacked off at me for saying something to him about re reversing a policy that he had early adopted, it could be my head. Here we go, Lord. And so that's all he has time to say. Lord, help me. Spurgeon called that an arrow prayer, where you're just going along and all of a sudden, whoa, pong, arrow flying to heaven. Lord, help. This is it. 
It doesn't have to be flowery, it doesn't have to be long, but it is in earnest. And so I prayed to the God of heaven. All of a sudden, you're sad. You're not supposed to be sad in my presence. It's supposed to be a place of upbeat servants are always to say, oh, it's my pleasure, it's my pleasure to do that. And so you're supposed to be that way, and you're not, you seem to be down on yourself today, or you're just down. Well, that was dangerous, but that was his plan. Today, I'm going to talk to the king. It's been four months. I've been formulating and thinking about this, and now it's time to try something. We'll never get anywhere if I don't try something. And all of a sudden, by his trying something, we learn the power of plans. You've got a plan. You know what you're going to do. You don't know if it's a good plan or not, but you're going to try something. One of the greatest lessons of leadership I ever heard, I heard from a peer, basically he was a few years older than I was when I was in college, and um, this guy said, even a wrong decision carried out violently can produce good results. I think it's great because you all know what it's like to get into a decision. You're not sure whether that turned out to be very wise or not. You go, oh, snap, what have I done now? I, and you can just quit and go home right then. You've ta- you said, come on, let's charge. And you're leading these people into a charge. And then the rest of the other army comes over the hill. Oh, boy. What do you do? As Cornelius brothers and sister Rose said, It's too late to turn back now. Therefore, like a bunch of banshees, we go crying violently into the throat, like, we know what we're doing. And all of a sudden, there are only a few of them. What do they they think they can do? Can they, I bet there are more of them coming. I bet they've got them. Hey, come on, let's get out of here before they attack. And they all flee. Well, it was a bluff, but it was, you just got to go for it now. You've done all you could. You've asked questions. You have felt deeply. You have, you know, fasted. You have prayed. Now it's, try to, it's time to plan. Try to, you know, to do something. Try something. And even if it seems like a stupid idea, all of a sudden, with the very first of it, it's God's idea. It's the best I could do. I am going for it. And that's what happens here, and good things happen. Why? Because the way that section ends in verse 8. Because the good hand of my God was upon me, good hand of my God. So if he had said, okay, you know, I'm going to ask the king for help now, and he didn't really have, I said, I don't really know what to do, king. You're the great king. I'm just a lowly cupbearer. But could I maybe sometime get some time off to go back to Jerusalem 900 miles away and, and, and try to fix something? He would have said, yeah, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, 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 down the road. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. But when he gets caught with a specific proposal, you know the place where my father's graves are has just been totally exposed. All of a sudden, this king can relate to that. He goes, okay, yeah. Man, I wouldn't want that to happen to my father's grave, so what do you got in mind? Well, could you send me back to Jerusalem with some materials here? Your great and enlightened policies have really been good for my people, generally speaking, and you are so kind and magnificent. Um, would you send me back there? And He goes, okay. How long are you going to be gone? I'm going to be gone this long. And he doesn't mean 12 years, which he actually was gone. I'm sure he just said, if you could give me a year, I think I can pull this off. And then he gets extensions. But can you send me for this long? Can you send me with these materials? Can you give me these letters of authorization from the king's forest and for the governors of trans-Euphrates? And can I have, man, you seem like you got this pretty well planned out. Yeah, the power of plans is pretty wonderful. And so um, he goes for it. And then he's ready for one more stage along the journey. So start something. The hardest thing for a man in his mission is actually to start it. Okay, you've got approval, you've planned it, you've got all this stuff, and now it's time to execute. Ah, that is so much harder than anything else we've done so far, is to actually execute. Start something. So I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate 
And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. Just which would you rather, would you rather live by the dung gate or by the fountain gate? I'm just wondering, you know. I've never seen a subdivision called dung gate estates, but. There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. We can smell by gum Texas from this stage on the journey. Way back over here in the ho-hum Texas, these people would not have been ready to rise up and build. They would have not been close. They would have said, this, you can't do that. You can't work. You don't know what we're dealing with. We've got a, we actually have uh, letters from your same king, Artaxerxes, telling us to stop building the wall. Yeah, that happened years ago. Ezra will tell you about it. All of a sudden, in Ezra chapter 4, you can find this. He's given examples of opposition to the rebuilding of the temple and of the wall. There's one flash forward into the reign of King Artaxerxes where specifically the matter of the walls is being addressed. And the king specifically says, hold off on building those walls until I can do more research and determine whether or not that's appropriate. And so they just kind of gave up. They're back to ho-hum now. They can't do anything. And finally, somebody has come and said, no, I have authorization from that same king to do this, and I've got a plan on how we might do this. And you need to understand the power of starting something, the power of beginnings. And that's, there are three parts to this. This won't show up on your notes, but if you're really a diligent note taker, you can get these three parts to this plan in this section. There's the power of he. I know that's bad grammar, but the power of he. The power of ultimately God, as we'll see, but God speaking through the king because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He, is, he can turn the heart of the king. And Nehemiah understood that. He appealed to God and through God to the king, and the king granted him his request. And so I've got authorization. I don't care what these uh, local governors say. I've got authorization from the emperor himself. We're going to do this thing. And then we move from the power of of he, and now in verse 11, I went to Jerusalem, was there three days, and then I got up in the night. I and a few men, I, 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 first person singular all through this section. I, 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 all the way down through verse 16. The power of me. From the power of he, I've got authorization. Now the power of me. What can I do? I'm only one person. I can research. You'll see the power of research that's going on here. And so he goes out and he just inspects. You know, a lot of people are going to say, oh, yeah you, yeah, you ride in here on your horse and you think you can fix a problem that's been going for decades? No, you can't fix it, Nehemiah. You can't do this. We've got authorizations against us. You look at that pile of rubble. You have no idea what we're up against. And he knows he's vulnerable to that attack. And so he goes out and he inspects. And he studies the whole thing. Doesn't tell anybody he's doing it. You can do this by yourself. You can research. You can ask your questions more. You can come up with this. And the power of me is that I did my research, my due diligence, and I've anticipated your objections. And then there's a huge shift that occurs in verse 17, and it's fabulous to watch, and it's very important for a man and his mission, whether his mission is in his home, or his mission's in his work, or his mission's in his church, or mission is in his community, his civic duty, his country, whatever, you've got a mission. Well, when you see the shift from me to we, that's being powerful. Again, play with the grammar there. I'm looking for rhyme over my grammar, but the power of we. Nehemiah has not said we. He has not used the first person plural at all until verse 17. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. So let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they did something. The power of beginning, and they began because it moved from me to we. 
awesome. And now, one last stage, endure something. Oh, you thought this was going to be easy? Just because you got it started and everybody's rah, rah, yeah, let's go for it. Well, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it and they jeered at us. They despised us and they said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Aren't you aware of that previous letter that caused you said you had to stop on the wall? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Don't just start something, endure something. You got to go all the way to the end. The power of persistence. You've got to persevere. You got to keep after it, keep after it, keep after it, endure. Be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. You've got to just hang in there, keep pushing, keep pushing. I will not give up. I will not give up. I will not give up. Think of your movies, Rocky. Think of Chariots of Fire. Think of Braveheart. Think of I will not give up. I will not give up. I'm in pain. I will not give up. I will not give up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And now you've made the journey all the way from ho-hum over there to by gum here. I'm committed and we're going to do this mission to the glory of God. Because it was God who was involved. He defied these false local leaders. And on the name of God, he says, you don't have anything to do with this. This is our fight and we will fight it and we will build this wall. What's the conclusion of the whole matter? The difference one person can make. And I'll say that the key verse here for everything, if you can't remember anything else, then you remember chapter 2, verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Some one. One person. You say, I'm not a great speaker. I can't around. Yeah. But you maybe can give money. You maybe can give encouragement to somebody else. You maybe can offer expertise. You can offer something. So what is the one thing that I'm going to contribute, but I'm going to be a person that's going to cause Satan trouble by the glory of God? And even if I'm the shortest man in the Bible, Nehemiah, I'm still going to give Satan trouble. Actually, he's not the shortest man in the Bible. Bildad the shoe height is shorter. Uh, and really, even shorter than him is Peter, who fell asleep on his watch. So that's even shorter. But nevertheless... You know, Zacchaeus, who climbed the sycamore tree, any of those. But one little man, Nehemiah, made a huge difference. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you move us from ho-hum to by gum in the mission that you have distinctively called us to? Help us discern that mission by asking questions and fasting and praying and understanding what is it you would have me to do and then, Lord, show us the, the particular contribution to make for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, that your name might be hallowed, that your kingdom might come, and that your will might be done. For to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness is our heart's cry. We pray it in the name of our great King Jesus. Amen.